This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we ask Jane Mayer of The New Yorker what may be the most important question of the year. Would Pence be worse? Also, why are Danes so much happier than Americans? Is it just because Donald Trump is not their president? Joshua Holland says there's more to it than that later in this hour. And we have a history segment today, Sean Wilentz on the place of slavery in the origins of the United States. But first, where do we stand with Russiagate? Trump Watch starts right now. Now it's time for a Russiagate update, something we haven't done here for a while. There have been many plot twists in the story of Russia's efforts to help Trump win the election, but basically what we have is a corruption scandal, one that should bring down Trump's presidency. For that, we turn to David Cleon. He writes for the New York Times op-ed page, The Guardian, Salon, and The Nation, mostly about U.S.-Russian relations. We reached him today in Brooklyn, David Cleon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, it's true that Russiagate has been overhyped at times, but you say that at its core, it's a well-documented political corruption scandal that's not very complicated. Uh, please explain what we know at this point. You know, there's, there's what we know and what we can be pretty sure of from, from the public and reputable reporting. And what we know is that uh, repeatedly through uh, the 2016 election, the Trump campaign was approached by various Russian or Russian-affiliated figures. There's some controversy over whether we can call them agents or not, but, you know, people with ties to the Kremlin and who, who seem to be reaching out for various shady purposes. And we know that basically every Trump-connected official involved in that has lied to federal investigators at one point or another about it. We know that Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, has pleaded guilty to that. We know that Manafort has tried to undermine this investigation and, and gotten additional charges for it. We know that Trump fired James Comey uh, and then pretty much outright said on, on national TV that he did it to try to shut down the Russia investigation. We know that Trump asked Russia to hack his opponent's emails, which people try to write off as a as a joke. But I mean, <laughs> you, you don't joke about stuff like that. I'm sure, Russia took the signal very clearly. What it all points to, whatever the the details are that will emerge in due course, what it all points to is a coordinated effort by the Russian government to interfere in the election and, in various ways, hinder and sabotage Hillary Clinton's campaign. And clearly, with some degree of cooperation from people around Trump and very likely Trump himself. And all of this, I think, has been pretty obvious all along. But uh, for various axe-grinding reasons, a lot of people resist these conclusions. So, seems like there was a quid pro quo. Russia would help Trump get elected. And what Russia wanted in return was for Trump to ease the sanctions that the Obama administration put into effect after the Russian military intervention in Ukraine in 2014. And Trump just didn't want help becoming president. He also wanted to make money. He wanted a big real estate deal in Moscow. 
And apparently in exchange for easing the sanctions on Russia, he would get hundreds of millions from the Russians and help building a Trump Tower in Moscow, which he's wanted to do for more than for more than a decade. Supposedly with a with a fifty million dollar penthouse for Vladimir Putin. Is that the, the latest thing that came out? Yes. Uh, which which never which never worked out. Now some of the things you just said I believe are most likely true. But I think given all the, the hype around it, we, we should be careful to say that, you know, a lot of it is, is still speculative or not conclusively proven. It just, you know, it all seems to be pointing that way. In particular, I think there's always been kind of an open question about how how much Donald Trump even intended to win the 2016 election. Yes. Yes. And and in fact, since he often, in his weird way, can, can sometimes give real insights into the truth, even mm-hmm. though he's a liar, he was tweeting the other day after those um, Trump Tower Moscow stories were coming out. He was tweeting about, I, I didn't know if I was going to win the election and, uh, you know, I was going to be in business afterwards and, and I wanted to make money. So there's nothing to see here, which <laughs> is a very revealing comment in, in that it's probably more or less true. Not only that he didn't know if he was going to win, but I bet he, he thought he might not. And I bet a lot of the people around him thought he might not. And so with that in mind, they felt that there was nothing improper about, you know, cutting international deals, which pose huge conflicts of interest for someone running for president, let alone winning. I've always tried to argue that Russiagate is best seen as, as part of a larger pattern of Trump and the people around him working with foreign governments in a corrupt and unsavory way that's not limited to Russia at all, and is also not limited to Trump and the people around him at all but that, in fact, has been much too tolerated for much too long and reflects an endemic culture of, of silly corruption in the United States. And in fact, in The Nation magazine, your recent piece, you say that the Trump organization is basically an international money laundering scheme. You want to explain that? Well, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting to that effect, much of which doesn't really concern Russiagate or only tangentially does. The, the Trump family... Uh, beginning with with his father, Fred Trump, used to be a real real estate developing family that, you know, built actual physical housing in Brooklyn and Queens and later built towers all over Manhattan. And and, uh, there are all kinds of things you can say about them, but but they they were what they appeared to be more or less. But in the past generation, they've kind of shifted from that model to a sort of international branding model where they sold off all their actual properties. And this has been extensively reported on by the New York Times and elsewhere. And instead, they, um, they, they basically sell the Trump name and affix it to buildings to connote a kind of gaudy wealth. And they do this all over the world. And nobody is really clear how much money Trump actually has, and he won't release his tax returns. And nobody is, 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 is clear, you know, what, what the Trump organization actually does. But it is clear that they've worked with organized crime in the U.S. and around the world, that they've worked with all kinds of governments that are less than transparent, and that the real estate industry to begin with is one of the uh, I think Adam Davidson has written a lot about this yes. for The New Yorker, is, yes. is one of the most effective industries for moving around illicit sums of money. So, you know, when we ask ourselves, like, why why is Trump so rich and why are his kids so rich when they seem to have no actual business acumen, the answer is uh, they've, they've built a brand that despots and mafiosos around the world recognize as, as very useful.
And I think that carried them all the way to the presidency. Yes, and, and some of those people, as you emphasize, some of those people are Russians, Russian oligarchs, Russians connected to the Kremlin, and so on. And Very clearly. In fact, in fact, quite a few people who, I think, rented out units in, in the original Trump Tower are. And, of course, just to remind our listeners, the clearest case of Russian help for Trump becoming president came after Trump publicly asked Russia to help find Hillary's emails. And then when Trump most needed help, right after that Access Hollywood tape came out, WikiLeaks published documents that Russia had hacked from the DNC email accounts. Uh, When he needed help the most, he got it from Russian hacking. So they did their part to help him. You've also written in The Nation that we don't need Bob Mueller to tell us that Trump obstructed justice around these questions because we already know that. He publicly, bluntly admitted to the world that he fired James Comey to end the Russia investigation. You say Mueller has been telling us something else, what you describe as, quote, something much more frightening. What is that? Well, uh, in that piece that you're referring to, I talk about the hints that we've had that Russiagate also implicates Congress, uh, and specifically the Republicans in Congress. Um, so the, the most infamous incident in this regard, but it's still not infamous enough, I think, where, where there was a recording that was leaked of the senior Republican leadership in the House, so uh, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and they're, they're chatting about various things. And one of them says, you know, there, there's two people who I think Putin pays. There's, there's Donald Trump, uh, then the Republican nominee for president. And there's uh, Dana Rohrabacher, who was a, uh, I guess he just lost his seat, but a Republican yes. congressman from California. Yes. And they all laugh about this. And uh, then they sort of pretend that it was a joke. And, and Ryan is like, you know, uh, uh, what happens in the family stays in the family or something like that. And, um, and later when this was released in, in the post, the transcript of this, they all insisted that they had just been joking. But, you know, that's obviously ass-covering. The, the reality is that there's lots of reason to think that Rohrabacher, uh, you know, had some kind of corrupt relationship with Russia. And it's quite possible he's not the only one either. And, and for that matter, they're plenty of reasons to think that other uh, members of Congress have corrupt relations with other countries, maybe in the Persian Gulf or China or wherever. But to my mind, it's, it's not just that, you know, Trump or Rohrabacher do, but if, if Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise all know this and they're all fine with it and they all have, you know, supported Trump through all of this, that makes them complicit in a significant way. I mean, that makes, there, there is a sense in which the whole GOP in, in Congress has been functioning as a, as a giant criminal conspiracy. And I think what Mueller has done, I, I don't know how consciously, but what, one reason that I think the left should support the Mueller investigation unreservedly, and not, not because we have some hero cult around Mueller, or because Republican you know, FBI agent is, is someone we should particularly admire or anything like that, but because what this investigation is doing is it is exposing so much of the corruption that has just been taken for granted in Washington for so long uh, and in New York real estate. And um, I think that has like an incredibly powerful function. And the left can also use it um, for its messaging, as I would say, 
candidates like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren have already been doing as they gear up to maybe run for president. And there's one other way in which the Republican Party is itself is part of the Russiagate scandal, and that has to do with when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was informed of Russian interference in September 2016, before the election, in a meeting with President Obama. Tell us what happened at that meeting. There was a meeting with uh, John Brennan, who I think was the head of the CIA at the time, and um, the heads of both parties in Congress and President Obama. And they were all informed of, of the intelligence community's unanimous assessment that there was an ongoing Russian attempt to interfere in the election. Uh, all of this was put forward to all of the most powerful people in Washington. And, and Obama wanted, I think, quite rightly to make a, a public statement to that effect several months before the election that, uh, that this was happening and that the U.S. was going to take some, some kind of steps uh, to respond to it. Um, and McConnell told him, McConnell being, of course, one of the most breathtakingly cynical men alive, that if Obama were to do this, then he would he would immediately say, well, no, this is not true. This is a, a partisan, you know, ploy to, to, to try to hurt Donald Trump. Uh, and he would undermine the whole thing and, and turn it into uh, into a partisan fight instead of what it should have been, which was a, a unifying national security threat. And what's, I think, a real failure on Obama's part is that he listened. McConnell, of course, was thwarting Obama throughout his presidency in various ways. But in this case, I feel like the the correct move for Obama would have been to give the speech anyway, and in the speech, tell the American people Mitch McConnell was briefed on the same thing, and he chose to put his party ahead of the country. And, you know, all all but call him a traitor. Maybe do call him a traitor. And, And if Obama were tougher, I think he could have threatened to do that uh, at that meeting and uh, seen how McConnell responded. But instead, he did nothing. He thought that it would be improper for him to uh, put it, put his finger on the scales in any way. And he also thought, as so many people unfortunately did, that, that Hillary Clinton had the election in the bag. And so this could all be worked out after. But I, I think, you know, we still know this and, and we have to factor it into to what we think about McConnell and what we think about every Republican in the Senate, including the so-called moderates and never-Trumpers who, who have uh, supported McConnell in his leadership role. Because, you know, I, I would say that at that moment that he told the president that, he became an active participant in, in this interference scheme. I mean, very consciously. David Cleon, he writes about Russiagate. Read his new article, It's Time to Demystify Russiagate, at thenation.com. Thank you, David. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Anytime. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Coming up, would Pence be worse? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, why are Danes so much happier than Americans? But first, would Pence be worse? 
Donald Trump is narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and aggressive, maybe he'll be forced out of office before the end of his term. But would that be a good thing? Would Pence be worse? Jane Mayer has been working on that question. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback and back on the bestseller list in Los Angeles. The last time she was here, we talked about the secret power behind the Trump presidency, the reclusive and very right-wing hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, my first question is, do you think that Mike Pence wants to be president? Oh, I, I think there's, um, there's no doubt. In fact, I interviewed so many people for this story, I think something like 60-some 60, 60 people, and including um, the editor of the newspaper in his hometown, who said to me, Mike Pence popped out of his mother's womb wanting to be president. Uh, he, he's, by the time he was in high school, he was telling his um, classmates that he wanted to be president of the United States. This is, uh, this is one of the revelations to me that I, I just didn't expect. I knew he was you know, very much a social conservative and a, a member of the Christian right, but he's also hugely ambitious. But yet he's never been really successful as a candidate or as an elected official. He, he lost his first elections. He barely won the governor's race, got only 49% of the vote. And you say uh, his tenure as governor nearly destroyed his political career. I remember that when Trump picked him, it looked like he might lose his reelection campaign for governor. So how do you explain his relatively weak performance as a candidate and as governor? Part of the problem is his views really are so extreme that he has, as, as one of the Republicans that I quote in the story, a guy named Bill Osterley said, he scared a lot of people, even in Indiana, that, which is partly why he only got 49% of the vote when he ran for governor. I mean, to, to, to balance that out, though, he did, he did serve a number of terms in Congress, of course, and kept getting reelected. And he, meanwhile, was rising in the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress. So... So he has some skills, and I wouldn't underestimate those. In particular, he has a, a great gift for making extreme positions seem less threatening. It's kind of the same gift that, that Ronald Reagan had, and to some extent, Dick Cheney had. The, the, he knows how to explain things in a way that makes him seem affable and likable, and you, you don't really grasp the, the sort of the threat that's um, in, in some of the policy positions he's taking. Well, among the 60 people you interviewed for your story in The New Yorker to understand Mike Pence, you talked to his mother. What is she like? <laughs> his mom's name is Nancy um, uh, Pence Fritch. She's gotten re remarried. Um, she, uh, after her, uh, Mr. Pence died, um, she was actually quite delightful. And I would say to the extent that Mike Pence has any charm, it probably comes from his mom. She's a, um, staunch Irish Catholic lady who was originally from Chicago, 
um, very proud of her roots and um, moved to Indiana because of her husband's job. And uh, she had a sense of humor. She was pretty, you know, very proud of her, all of her sons. She's got six kids. It was her other son, though, her first son, um, Gregory, who um, actually was uh, taking a lot of sort of ribbing her and and ribbing his brother and, and kind of taking a few sort of sibling-like shots at Mike Pence while I was interviewing him, too. In your New Yorker piece, you quote Mike Pence's mother telling you, I was a Stepford wife. What is she talking about? <laughs> Well, I was asking her um, over coffee in uh, Columbus, Indiana, where they're all from, wh- you know, how did she become a Republican? Because she'd originally been a, a, a big Democrat, a fan of the Daily Machine in, in Chicago and, and of the Kennedys. And she said, well, my husband became Republican, and I guess I just sort of followed what he wanted. And she said, I was a Stepford wife. <laughs> um, and <laughs> she, she actually went back to college when she was 65 and got a degree in psychology and that she sort of said that's when she started thinking for herself and her her son Gregory who is uh, Mike Pence's brother said yeah she was like the scarecrow she you know that's when she got her brain and then the mom looked at me and she said you see what I have to put up with so I mean they were they were you know they were kind of lively nice people funny uh, affable and um, self-deprecating and warm. It's the father in the family, though, who I think casted sort of a big shadow. And um, he was actually German, not Irish, and a staunch disciplinarian. And he um, had a rule in the household, which was that the Pence children, there were six of them, were not allowed to speak at the dinner table. They had to sit there in silence while their parents spoke. Wait a minute. And, wait a minute. Um, the children were not allowed to speak at the dinner table? They were not. They were forbidden from speaking except to say a few things like, pass the butter, please, and then thank you. Anyway, he was, uh, Greg Pence said to me that their father was very black and white. Um, he, He enforced discipline with a belt. And he always knew where you stood with him, the brother said. And he said, then he said to me, and, and my brother, meaning Mike Pence, is a lot like him. Well, one of the things we know about Mike Pence is that he's uh, intensely religious, evangelical, Protestant. His mother told you, quote, religion is the most important thing in our lives. What else did she say? But she said, you know, we don't, we're, we don't take it that seriously and we don't proselytize. But you see, the thing is, M- Mike Pence broke with the family's religion. Um, that all the kids, the, all the boys in the family, their four sons and two daughters, and the, all four sons were altar boys and they were very, very involved in, you know, parochial school and all of that. But, but, but when Mike Pence went off to college, to Hanover College in, in Indiana, he changed his religion. He, con- he, he became born again and converted to evangelism. Evangelical Christianity, and and it interested me because he's someone who has, if you look at his pattern, very much kind of floated, been caught up in in the larger political currents, and the current at that point was moral. The moral majority was proselytizing across the country and trying to convert, among others, Catholics to become evangelical Christians, Protestants, and and he he got caught up in that, and he changed the religion, which is, you know, quite a surprise in his family. And and they're dealing with it, but it it it's a it's an important rupture. You said his family were Democrats. I was amazed 
to learn from your article in The New Yorker that Mike Pence voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, not for Ronald Reagan. What's the story there? Well, again, don't forget, Jimmy Carter was a born-again Christian. So he, uh, there were a lot of evangelicals who, who voted for him, um, including ones that would become increasingly conservative afterwards and become more Republican, and that's what happened with Mike Pence. He, he fell in love with Reagan after, <laughs> after voting for Jimmy Carter, um, and Reagan became kind of his, his role model. So again, in fact, I, I didn't put in the story, but I have read that Mike Pence likes to listen to, on you know, to to tapes of Reagan's speeches and and jokes. I've heard him tell some of Reagan's jokes. I think he's he's again tried to capture that sort of affable conservative style that 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 won't be as off putting to people. But um, beneath that style is about as hardcore right wing social conservative as you can find in this country. And what's the deal with his refusing to eat dinner alone with another woman? Does he really think other women will lure him into adultery? <laughs> well, you know, there is it's it's this code in the um evangelical right um and the idea is that you you need to keep yourself out of temptation. So he will not eat dinner with a woman other than his wife alone and he also will not go to a cocktail party or any place where they're serving alcohol in mixed company when she is not present. I mean, in some ways, I felt that his wife, Karen Pence, who he calls mother, she acts almost like a chaperone in his life. And you kind of have to wonder, you know, why is it he feels he needs such chaperoning? Yeah. Well, you need to keep yourself out of temptation, he, he believes, and yet he supported Donald Trump after the Excess Hollywood tape came out where, uh, let us say, Trump uh, does not try to keep himself out of temptation. Well, this is where you see the other side of Pence. So people think of him as an uncompromising Christian conservative, but in fact, he has he's cut his his necessary deals when he needs to in order to get ahead. And and getting on the on the uh, ticket with with Trump was certainly uh, the largest example that he was willing to sort of strike a, a, a Faustian bargain when he needed to. And it rescued him. I mean, it must be said, uh, many people I interviewed thought that Mike Pence would never have gotten reelected as governor of Indiana. He was incredibly unpopular. There were signs popping up all over the state saying, fire Mike Pence. And, and so it was really actually a, you know, a rescue operation when Trump put him on the ticket because there are very strong odds for vice presidents becoming president. It put him in, in line to be potentially a president of the United States in a way he never would have had the chance otherwise. One of your sources, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you quote saying, if Pence were to become president, the government would be run by the Koch brothers. Uh, you, of course, uh, have written the book on the Koch brothers, and you report that in 2012, one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch, wanted Pence to run for president. How did Mike Pence, the the far-right Christian evangelical conservative, become a favorite of the Kochs? Well, it's a curious story because, and one that I actually didn't know till I got uh, deeply into the reporting on Pence. But as you, you know, your question sort of suggests that the the Cokes 
are not religious. They don't care about um, sort of social conservatism. They call themselves libertarians. So they, they certainly are not aligned with Pence on these moral issues having to do with his hatred of abortion and, and you know, th- those kinds of issues. So what do they have in common? Well, it turns out in 2009, Mike Pence started doing some major economic favors for the Kochs. Uh, they were... Tr- tremendously powerful, but they were really worried that um, some legislation was going to pass through Congress that was going to end up taxing carbon pollution. They're a huge fossil fuel company, and it would have hurt their bottom line tremendously. And Mike Pence took up their cause, and he he campaigned and pushed and wheedled, and he, he took a, a, a petition that the, that the Koch organization had created and got tons of his colleagues in the House to sign on to it, saying that they would passed no legislation to stop global warming that would require spending a, a cent of government money. And and what happened as a result of his activism and that of a few other people in the in the uh, leadership on the Republican side in the House was that they they he succeeded in killing the legislation which would have resulted in a tax on carbon pollution, helping Coke Industries hugely, and and from there on out aligning the Republican Party against doing anything about climate change, unlike almost any other political organization in the world. Um, and so it was a, a hugely valuable thing that he did for Coke Industries. And Coke Industries has rewarded him ever since. And he became, you know, one of their favorite politicians, if not their favorite politician. So that's the, that's the origin story of, of how they became so close. And then they began to try, the Cokes were hoping to push him to run for president. So I need to return to our opening question. Would Pence be worse than Trump right now? What, what answers did people give you to that question? So I, I asked tons of people, and, 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 you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was among the people who, <laughs> who were most negative about Pence were people in Indiana, including a number of Republicans. Even moderate Republicans were, were found Pence just so far right that they, that they thought, and, and, and also kind of incompetent, that they, they were just warning me against him. And there's one um, Republican state legislator I quote named Ed Clay from Indiana who said to me, I would take Trump any day of the week and twice on Sundays over Pence, which is kind of shocking. Yeah. And, 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 a num- you know, and a number of the others did too. And then <laughs> there's some Democrats who, for different reasons, kind of said the same thing. I quote Harold Ickes in the story. Um, who's a big Democratic operative and has been for a number of years. And, and, and Icky said to me, Democrats should pray that Trump stays in office because he feared that if Pence came in, it would be a much harder foil for the Democrats to run against. Pence, Pence is likely to be, it would be able to work with Congress if he were president because he's been in Congress, maybe even get something done, might be a little bit more competent than, than Trump, you know, and, and certainly in this a social conservative legislation sphere, he poses a, a, a different and bigger threat. But it all comes down to, I think, how great a threat you think Trump might be in terms of starting a nuclear war. And that is everybody's caveat. You know, if, if, if you think Trump might start a nuclear war, what could be worse? Pretty much nothing. But beyond that, I, I can't say that I heard a lot of votes for Pence. 
Jane Mayer, she interviewed 60 people for her piece for The New Yorker. It's called The Danger of President Pence. It's required reading for everybody interested in politics. Jane, thanks so much for this piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Coming up, why are Danes so much happier than Americans? That's in a minute on KPFK. When Trump Watch continues. Same old story, back again. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Mostly on this show, we don't talk a lot about happiness. Most of the news in the age of Trump is pretty unhappy. But now we want to change our tune and consider this. People in Denmark are a lot happier than people in the United States. Is that just because they do not have Donald Trump as their president? For comment, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine and a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. And he wrote the text for a wonderful new animated video at thenation.com. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there are a lot of ways you could compare and contrast life for Danes with life for Americans. First of all, there's something called a child benefit in Denmark, unknown in America. What is the child benefit? Well, it costs a lot to raise children, and in Denmark, everybody gets a certain stipend. It's the same amount for rich people and poor people. And um, it's one of many different social welfare programs that smooths out the hazards of of, um, living in a capitalist society. How much is the child benefit in Denmark? It's $225 a month. And then um, until they reach, I think, age eight, and then it decreases a little bit. So uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of cash to help with babysitters and stuff like that. One of the things that I, I hope that comes through uh, in this in this little animation is that these are not alien systems. These are not totally different concepts. Um, a lot of people would like to say, well, we live in a capitalist country. They live in socialist countries. Well, in both countries, capitalism is the main engine for economic productivity. And in both countries... A certain sector, a certain segment of the uh, country's economic output is devoted towards the social safety net. And they're not so they're not diametrically opposite systems. They are varied approaches to mixed economies. And I think that they reflect a different set of priorities. Let me let me uh, ask about a couple more of these. We have Head Start for kids from low-income families who meet the eligibility standards, but in, in Denmark, everybody gets free preschool starting at six months if they want. Very uh, high-quality preschool. They can't be charged more than a quarter of their income, and people at the lower end of the income ladder, they don't pay a, a penny. And think about how that, that helps. We talk a lot about work-life balance. Imagine how much easier it is for people to, you know, raise a family and uh, work a job when you know that you could drop off your kid to an extremely high-quality preschool system and not even worry about it. In, in Head Start, we have that covers a 
tiny fraction of the population in terms of full, full-time Head Start programs. Of course, they have very good public schools. They have free college and vacation. Danes get paid vacation. How much paid vacation do Danes get? Well, so uh, all Danes get at least five weeks of paid vacation. Certain union members get a sixth, and then they throw in this other kind of random week around the holidays. So most Danes get about seven weeks of paid vacation. And one of the things that I think you need to look at in in, in the bigger picture is that when you account for um, the cost of living, the average Dane, the average American, their incomes are eh, pretty similar but we work a lot more hours than they do. And if you look at the the amount of vacation they get, the amount of hours per week they, they work, they, they have a lot less stress than we do. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated is that there is a lot of stress living in a capitalist society. Um, there's risk. There's inherent risk. This is something that I think conservatives really don't appreciate. They have this idea that there's people who are worthy of benefits and people who are unworthy of benefits. But whoever you are, you can walk out tomorrow and, you know, a piano can fall on your head or whatever. And, you know, we take on most of those risks or much of those risks ourselves as individuals in this country. And in the Scandinavian countries, that risk is socialized. It's spread out among the, the the population. So if you walk out and you get hit by a piano and you have kids in school, you're going to be okay. You're going to get unemployment. You're going to have uh, health care that you pay very little out of pocket for. Your, your, your risk is reduced as an individual. It's a lot less stressful living in those countries. Ivanka Trump has been advocating parental leave. I think it's four or six weeks. I see that in Denmark, they have a full year of paid parental leave that the parents can divide uh, between them. And of course, they have a health care system of the kind we only dream about here. Uh, We've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to listen to a clip of what you actually did on the animated video. It's not the usual uh, Nation magazine angry pronouncements and and alarms about how (laughs) rotten everything is in society. Let's listen to Joshua Holland narrating the animated video about why Danes are happier than Americans. So you get the picture. Emma will have lived her life under the crushing burden of democratic socialism, that combination of state-funded education, health care, parental leave, and plenty of other benefits, has made the citizens of Denmark the second happiest people in the world. And Americans, we're number 15. I got to say, it makes me happy just to listen to that. How did you decide to do it in this in this form? Well, you know, as, as you know, because I've been on your show before, I have yes. a, a terrible disease, which is that I get wonky very easily. So <laughs> I wanted to make this something that was really accessible. And th- this was really our... Our goal with this is that we didn't want to write a paper about, you know, oh, look at look at how much social benefits they get and how much social costs are privatized in the United States, blah, blah, blah. We wanted it to be something that, you know, you could watch the cute video and, and see the, the animation. The animation, by the way, is, I think, hilarious. I yeah. love the animation. And, um, and come away with a sense of the differences that, that doesn't require, like, a PhD to understand. Joshua Holland. Josh, thanks especially for this unwonky uh, effort, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
I'm John Wiener here in L.A. on KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up... Americans have always struggled over the place of black people in America, starting at the beginning with the Constitution. Was the Constitution a pro-slavery document? Was the American nation founded on the Constitution's affirmation of slaves as property? Sean Wilentz has been studying that question, and he's here with some answers. He teaches history at Princeton. He writes for the New York Times op-ed page, the New York Review, and other publications. He's the award-winning author of many books, and his new book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, welcome. As ever, great to be here, John. Here's the argument. The Constitution's original sin when it was written in 1787 was that it had a pro-slavery heart. And of course, traces of that are still alive in our political culture today. It took a terrible civil war to change that Constitution. The post-Civil War amendments, remember the 13th and the 14th, abolished slavery and guaranteed equal protection to all. And then the 15th Amendment, the first time the right to vote is mentioned in the Constitution, only then, the argument goes, did the nation repudiate the pro-slavery bias of the Constitution of 1787. Briefly, what's the argument you make against all this? My point is that there's always been a struggle. We even see that in 1787 at the Convention in Philadelphia. The framers of the Constitution conceded to the slaveholders a great deal in the Three-Fifths Clause, in delaying the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, in uh, putting in a fugitive slave clause. All of these things were there. They were all concessions to the slaveholders. However, what that view missed was the presence of an anti-slavery politics, even in the convention itself, and an anti-slavery politics that never did not simply fight and lose, but actually accomplish something, and accomplish something that proved to be very, very important to the, uh, to the flourishing of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century and the coming of the Civil War. Historians are always interested in context, and I think we need to recall the context of America in 1787. We're talking here about anti-slavery. Anti-slavery was a very new idea in world history in 1787. Yeah, that's quite correct. I mean, since antiquity, slavery had basically been accepted. There were the Quakers at the end of the 17th century, but not until 1750 did the Quakers even say that they could not own slaves anymore. So, so anti-slavery is something that's born more or less at the same time as the American Revolution. The very first anti-slavery society in the history of the world was founded in Philadelphia in 1775, five days before the battles of Lexington and Concord. It had nothing to do with the battles of Lexington and Concord. They were mostly Quakers. But nevertheless, that was the beginning. It was a very new thing in 1787. There had been slave rebellions. The free blacks had been pressing for, for, for their freedom, for, uh, for expansion of their rights. Slaves had been uh, suing for their freedom for a while in, in, in New England. There were stirrings, to be, the, to, to be sure. But as a movement, as a form of politics, it was really very, very new. So in some ways, the anti-slavery delegates to the convention were carrying into the convention a kind of politics that was still experimental, that was still getting off the ground. Um, to the extent that they, what I'm struck by is by how much they succeeded, given how new and experimental it really was, rather than where they fell short. Well, and let's talk about slavery in 1787. What were the slave states in 1787? Well, I mean, in 1776, let me make this point, every state, all of the new states in the United States, all the colonies um, were slave states. 
Slavery is recognized as legal in all of them. It's only in 1780 that Pennsylvania passes the first gradual emancipation law of its kind in history. And then five states in all, and then the state to be of Vermont, get rid of slavery eventually by 1787. Slave states, well, Delaware, from Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. We think of the cotton plantations. We're thinking about a slavery that was going to be there at the time of the Civil War. But that was a very different slave economy, if you will. It was a, it was a slave economy that was based on a different staple crop, which was cotton. At the end of the 18th century, tobacco market was glutted. The world tobacco market was glutted. It was not a, a, a wise, smart proposition to get involved in tobacco production. Um, there were only so many pipes in Europe. I mean, you know, the, things could not continue the way they were. So it was widely thought, especially in the Upper South, um, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, that slavery was a system that was kind of on its, on its way out and eventually was going to be supplanted by something else. They had many questions of what you were going to do with all of those slaves, how blacks and whites might get along. All of that was there, but economically it seemed to be not the wave of the future. That was not true in South Carolina and Georgia. There, where right, there were much more specialized crops, a very special kind of cotton was grown in, in, on, on the, you know, the Atlantic seaboard. There, slavery was, was prospering, and they were holding on to their slaves and their, their right to ha have slaves um, very tenaciously, much more than the Virginians. This is all going to be changed dramatically in the 1790s after the Constitutional Convention with the invention of the cotton gin and the rise of the cotton economy, which makes the slavery that we know, which creates the slavery that we know, um, but it's a very different kind of economy. So the politics makes the politics different. If you're in a situation where even many slaveholders think that slavery is kind of not such a great proposition economically, forget the morality and the enlightenment part of it, but just, you're not, it's not the wave of the future economically. That's a very different situation than you're going to have by the 1830s and 1840s, where cotton is the most valuable agricultural commodity in the world. It's the, you know, it's OPEC, uh, right? It's, 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 it's the, you know, the, the Southerners are building not only the strongest, but the richest slave society on earth, maybe indeed in world history. But that's a different moment in the history of American slavery than the one that we're talking about back in 1787. So the people who have been arguing that the Constitution is a, has a pro-slavery heart make the argument that the Constitution allows slavery to continue. It accepts the existence of slavery. Isn't that granting it legitimacy? Isn't that making it part of the foundation of the United States? No, it's not. And the reason it's not is because the Constitution was not devised to set up property laws for the entire country. Why were the framers in Philadelphia? They were there to establish a new government, more powerful central government than, than had existed under the Orders of Confederation. They were not there to mess around with the property laws of the individual states. Now, slavery existed as a state institution. The convention was in no um, position, the delegates to the convention were in no position to abolish slavery, to tell the southern states to get rid of slavery, they didn't have the power to do so. Had they tried to do so, they would, have, would not have been in the United States of America now. But there's a difference between tolerating slavery in state laws and legitimizing slavery in national law. By refusing to do that, and they do so very deliberately, it made possible what was going to become the, the fulcrum of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century, 
which is not to abolish slavery, but to contain it, to keep it from growing, from keeping it from getting any larger than it was. There were two basic ways to do that in 1787. One is to keep the Western territories under the jurisdiction of the federal government and not to acknowledge property in man, therefore making it impossible for slaveholders just to claim their rights in the territories. That was one way. The second way was to give this new government the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. Understand, going back to what I was saying before, John, about the character of slavery at the end of the 18th century as opposed to the 19th century. By the time you get to the 1820s and 30s, slavery can expand without an Atlantic slave trade, as well it did. The domestic slave trade becomes much more important. But at the end of the 18th century, the Atlantic slave trade was still seen as crucial certainly Southern slaveholders thought it was crucial, to keeping their institution alive. Um, indeed, all of the gradual emancipation or even immediate emancipation um, um, plans from the 18th century always began with getting rid of the Atlantic slave trade. That was always thought of as the first step towards abolishing slavery. What was going to be the power of the federal government, this new federal government, vis-a-vis -vis the Atlantic slave trade? The South Carolinians, the Georgians, they didn't want the government to have any power whatsoever over that trade. They wanted to keep it the way it was. It was only a matter of state law. The Northerners wanted the federal government to have complete control over the slave trade, to regulate it, but also to give it the power to abolish that slave trade. And indeed, the federal government does get the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. It's quite true that the Southerners, and they're clever, they managed to get a kind of stay of execution, first to 1800 and then to 1808. And many, of, many historians have seen that yes. as the great pro-slavery <clears throat> victory. Yes. They're missing the fact that what the really strong victory was was to give the, gov the, the federal government the power to get rid of it. The three-fifths clause. Every high school student knows the Constitution says that black, pe black people are three-fifths of a man. Yes, well, they, the, that, that slaves were going to be counted as three-fifths of a person for the, per, for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives and in the um, um, Electoral College. It's not that they were three-fifths of a person, mind you. Had they been carried, counted as a, as, as a full person, that's exactly what the slaveholders wanted, because they wanted war representation in Congress for the slaveholding states. So it's a, it's, it, was a, it was a compromise. The fact was, look, the, the framers of the Constitution in 1787, these, we're not talking about, you know, 19th century small-d Democrats. These are not, they believe that in the dominion of wealth, they believed that wealth ought to have a role to play in, in who was going to have power in the national government. That was true across the board. In 1791, when the Bill of Rights is approved by Congress, the Fifth Amendment, in effect, says, you know, it, it's about property. It's about due process. It's about the inviolability of property rights. So property is really important, and they want to make sure that wealth gets its say. Now, the South had a lot of wealth in slaves. Not recognized in national law, but by state law, that was where their wealth was. The idea that the holdings of slaves, their holdings of slaves would not be represented somehow in counting representation for the House and for the Electoral College, it really wasn't in the cards. There were debates. At one point, some, some of the Northerners are very angry at the South. They say, no, no, we're not going to count any of the slaves for anything. 
to which the slaveholders counter, oh, we're going to count them full. They keep coming back to the three-fifths clause. That is the compromise they're going to have. Now, look at the wording of the three-fifths clause. Slaves are never mentioned. It was already clear what they were talking about, but they refer, refer to slaves as all other persons. They were, slaves are referred to as persons. That's big. Well, you know, this has been part of the problem, I think, with the older interpretation of slavery in the Constitution. If you refer to slaves as persons, persons held to service, persons held to labor, what have you, you're lumping them with other forms of bonded labor, like indentured servitude or apprentices. But this is not the same thing as as making the slaves property. And that's the essential difference. That is going to make, by, 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 by making slaves, by rendering slaves, by discussing slaves as persons rather than as property, then the slaveholders' claims are no longer inviolable. The fight over precisely that issue of whether the Constitution recognizes property in man is going to be at the heart of the secession crisis and why the North is so tenacious in holding on to its view, its view of the Constitution, which is to say that the Constitution does not authorize slavery. And we have to talk about the Fugitive Slave Clause. This was an obsession of the slave owners. They're slaves who escaped to the free states and were protected there. The southern planters, slave-owning class, wanted them back, and the Constitution gives them the power to get them back. Correct. They get through a clause which says... It's, it's, it's very strange. I've said this to audiences before. If I was a teacher grading it, I would give it a very low grade, a D at best, because it's written entirely in the passive voice. It says that slaves who run to, from a slave state to a f- state that's either free or is becoming free, they will not be rendered free. Now, that's a major distinction, right? The, the, the northern states cannot hold themselves out as free soil for slaves to run away. More than that, slaves according to the the Fugitive Slave Clause, shall be delivered up to persons um, to whom their service or labor may be due. It's all in the passive voice. Never says who's going to be doing any of this stuff. It's a very vague protection to the slaveholders, which is going to say that basically the, the, the northern states cannot declare the slaves free when they get there. But who's going to do the delivering up? Who's going to be doing the, rep- you know, the, the actual capture? That's all left for later. That was something that the, the, the Northerners were willing to put up with. Now, here's probably, here certainly is the one place where the slaveholders actually expand, directly expand their power at the Constitutional Convention. Here's the place where something they didn't have before, they now have. In part, it's because the Northern states had been emancipating. This is a defensive uh, action on the part of the slaveholders. They wouldn't have done this in 1777 because... Slavery was illegal in all these northern states. So this was their attempt to try and deal with the fact that slavery was under great pressure in the north. They were going to make sure that the north could not be a refuge for their their runaway slaves. Because wherever you have slavery, you have runaway slaves, because slavery is intolerable. But when they design it, again, the question comes up, how are we going to describe the runaway slaves? Are we going to describe them as runaway slaves? In the very first iteration of this by the South Carolinians I talked about, that's exactly what they wanted to say. But the convention would not allow that. The convention makes, makes sure to word the Fugitive Slave Clause. We call it the Fugitive Slave Clause. 
It's not the Fugitive Slave Clause, because the word slavery is not actually put there. Everybody knew they were talking about slaves, but they referred to persons held to service or labor. Which again, that's an indentured servant, that's an apprentice, that's not necessarily recognizing slaves as property. In fact, it's, it's refusing to recognize slaves as property. So what does it all mean today? What's the import today of your argument that the American nation is not founded on a pro-slavery constitutional basis? I think that too much of the time we have a very you know, dark view of American history in which there's no struggle in which you know, the struggle emerged as, as slaves and others awoke to their, to their own um, uh, oppression, and that down the line, eventually, something is going to spring up that's going to challenge this racist slaveholders regime that came into existence in 1787. My argument is that there was struggle over that from the very beginning. Struggle that was rooted in the, in the um, uprisings of slaves and um, free blacks and resistance to, to, to racism and to slavery. Um, um, suits by free blacks to get their freedom. There was a struggle going on that, 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 that slaves and free blacks were, were, were instigating. But it implicated others, whites, who understood that, yes, this is something that we believe in. This is a violation of natural rights. We can't be fighting for liberty and freedom and equality and have slavery at the same time. That wasn't all of white America by any means. Um, there were many who were, uh, proposed exactly the opposite. There were many slaveholders who saw in the Declaration of Independence the principles that could uphold slavery. But there was a struggle. The struggle was there from the start. And if we were to understand the struggle for freedom in America, we are shortchanging it, we are misinterpreting it, if we don't see that struggle as going all the way back to the founders. The struggle was there from the start. Sean Walensa's new book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, thanks so much for talking with us today. As ever, John. See you later. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.